Welcome to Creep Shows, where we discuss films that are just generally discomforting. I'm Ian. And I'm Madeline. And today we are talking about Alien, the Ridley Scott film. Yeah, Alien came out in... 1979 it had a budget of 11 million dollars it was an american film written by dan o'bannon and ronald shusset uh directed by ridley scott and we watched it on hbo yeah so uh it was a pretty interesting movie and madeline why don't you give us a rundown of everything that goes on all right and just so you know when we say rundown um we are we mean a full full synopsis of this movie so if you do not want everything spoiled for you if you have not seen this movie already i recommend going over to hbo max or another streaming service where you can rent this movie and watching it there otherwise i'm gonna go ahead and get through this because there's a lot that happened oh in this yeah one. there certainly is yeah i'm gonna be talking at you for a minute here so i'll do my best to shut up no interject as you want i <laughs> i need it to keep going <laughs> <laughs> i know you do all, all right, right so take it away all right out in deep space the nostromo a commercial towing space vehicle carrying a refinery with 20 million tons of mineral ore is en route to earth with a crew of seven members the inside of the ship appears eerily quiet, but suddenly the onboard computer is activated. A room with biopods is illuminated. The canopy opens to awaken the crew. Executive Officer Kane is the first to awaken from hypersleep. They congregate in the dining hall where they have a meal at which we see Chief Engineer Parker and Engineering Technician Brett discussing how unfair it is that they get paid less than the officers. Captain Dallas is called away by Mother, the ship's computer. The rest of the crew deduce that they are nowhere near home yet. Navigator Lambert finds out that they are at Zeta-2 Reticuli. Dallas then briefs the crew of what he discovered while he was in the Mother console. The ship is not even halfway home and has altered its course because it has picked up an unknown signal which repeats every 12 seconds. The crew has been awoken from hypersleep to investigate it. Parker protests that they are not a rescue team and should be compensated for the extra work, but Officer Ash points out that per company contract, the crew is obligated to investigate any signal from an intelligence source. If they don't comply, they won't get paid. The ship approaches the planet and they have a rough landing, causing damage the engineers will have to repair before they can take off again. Dallas and Kane decide to investigate on foot and a reluctant Lambert is ordered to join. Meanwhile, Warrant Officer Ripley has gone to the lower deck to inspect the repairs. After that, she volunteers to try deciphering the signal Mother is picking up for Ash. She then goes into the Mother console and starts working on the strange signal. We cut back to the search team where they're clearing a rock formation and they make a fascinating discovery. They see a derelict spacecraft of unknown origin, or a UFO, if you might. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Despite Lambert's hesitation, they approach it, losing contact with the Nostromo upon entering the ship. Inside, they find hallways with walls textured like bones, and at the end is an elevated platform. It has the remains of an enormous skeleton-like creature in a large chair that is now fossilized. At this point, Lambert wants to leave. That becomes a recurring theme with her character if you mm -hmm. 
haven't caught on already, but Cain notices a large hole in the floor. Cain is lowered into the hole where he finds an enormous tube-like chamber divided into sections and basins. He nears one basin, discovering thousands of what appears to be large leathery eggs. Cain touches one of the eggs and it shrieks. He flashes his flashlight onto it and discovers there's movement inside. A strange spider-like organism is the resident. The <laughs> egg flaps open on top, revealing its inside. And as Kane moves in for a better look, the strange life form leaps out, attaching to Kane's helmet, melting his faceplate. Yeah. Dallas and Lambert carry the unconscious Kane back to the Nostromo. They enter the airlock and ask Ripley to let them in, while Ash at the inner airlock. Ash is waiting at the inner airlock door to open it. They inform Ripley that a life form has attached itself to Kane, so Ripley tries reminding them of a 24-hour quarantine protocol before being brought on board. Dallas is worried for Kane's life and begs Ripley to let them in, but she refuses despite Dallas pulling rank. Ash disregards Ripley's decision and lets them in anyway. In the infirmary, Dallas and Ash are trying to remove the creature from Kane's face, but the creature is suctioned to him with his tail wrapped around his neck. As they try to remove the creature with forceps, its, tight, its grip tightens around Kane's neck. Kane is examined with a sophisticated medical scanner, which shows the creature has inserted a tube into Kane's throat and is feeding him oxygen. Ash deduces that since Kane is in comatose and the creature is feeding him oxygen, removing the creature may kill him, but Dallas is willing to take that risk. Ask tr Ash tries to cut off one of the legs with a scalpel and it bleeds acid that burns through several decks. Ah, oh, that was such a cool sequence. Yeah, I really liked that scene the acid actually. Blood. Dallas orders everyone back to their post and Kane is left to be tended to by Ash. Dallas is then called to the infirmary by Ash as there is an update on Kane. The creature has detached itself from Kane's face and disappeared. They search the infirmary when it suddenly drops from an overhead compartment on Ripley. It appears to be dead, only showing basic reflexes when they poke it. Ripley wants to get rid of it as it might be harmful, but Ash wants to keep it to take back to Earth for more tests. Dallas shares Ripley's sentiment, believes the decision to ask, which really pisses off Ripley. Ripley tells Dallas she doesn't trust Ash as he just showed up two days before the Nostromo left Earth and neither of them had really worked with him before. Okay. The crew is back in the dining hall bickering about what to do with Kane. Lambert has calculated it will take another 10 months to get back to Earth, which puts everyone in an even worse mood. Dallas is then called back to the infirmary by Ash because Kane is awake. He remembers very little of the event but is starved and wants to eat. Kane is given food, and he suddenly begins to choke. This choking quickly escalates into him convulsing and seizing, and the crew tries to stabilize him as he is screaming in pain. His chest suddenly bursts open, and a small snake-like alien creature erupts through his ribcage. Parker tries to stab it, but is stopped by Ash, and the creature gets away. After a short... Space ship-off funeral for Kane, the crew members separate into two teams to capture the creature. Parker, Brett, and Ripley investigate one of the lower decks, picking up a signal. They think they cornered the creature into a cabinet, but it turns out just to be the crew's cat, Jones. Kitty! <laughs> Parker then sends Brett off to catch Jones in case they pick up on the cat on the tracker again. Brett eventually catches up to the cat, and the cat hisses when a huge... 
shape drop downs behind him. It's the creature. However, now it has grown. It has four limbs, an elongated head, and two rows of sharp teeth. The creature quickly bites Brett in the head and drags him above into an air shaft. Parker and Ripley arrive just in time to catch a glimpse of the monster as Brett disappears and blood drips down. Parker and Ripley can only confirm the creature is big and escape through the air ducts, and Brett is presumed dead. The crew decides their next move is to try to attack the creature with fire and use it as a way to scare it out of the air ducts. Ripley volunteers to enter the ducts, but Dallas overthrows her volunteering himself. During his venture into the ducts, Dallas encounters the creature and is snatched. Parker puts Dallas's flamethrower on the table, saying it was laying in the air duct, and says, No blood, no Dallas. Hmm. So, uh, another one presumed dead. Ripley accesses the mother console and asks her about why they are unable to neutralize the alien. Mother says she cannot clarify referring to a Special Order 937. Ripley overrides the command to get an explanation of Special 937. Mother says Nostromo rerouted to new coordinate. Investigate life form. Gather specimen. Priority 1. Ensure return of organism for analysis. All other considerations secondary, crew expendable. Ooh, she... She suddenly finds Ash next to her, saying there is an explanation. She furiously leaves the console to find Parker and Lambert, but Ash closes all the doors, trapping her in the dining hall. And he then attacks Ripley and tries to kill her in the stupidest way I have ever seen by trying to suffocate her with a rolled-up magazine. <laughs> just picture yeah, that for that a minute. That was a ridiculous scene he's where he not, rolls it up and tries to jam it in her yeah, mouth. Yeah, <laughs> he's not plugging her nose or cutting off other airflow. Yeah, that was just... Oh, uh, yeah, that was pretty funny. That was stupid. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry, that was stupid. Okay, so he's trying to kill her in the stupidest way possible. And Parker and Lambert manage to enter the dining hall. And Parker hits Ash in the back of the head with a fire extinguisher. Ash starts to convulse and shriek violently, making very inhuman sounds while spitting out white liquid. Parker hits him again and dislodges his head, revealing Ash is an android. Ash's movement starts to decrease, so Parker stops hitting him, but the decapitated body grabs him and forces him onto the table. Lambert grabs an electric prod and stabs Ash in the back with it, rendering him lifeless. Ripley theorizes that the company sent him along to bring an alien back to Earth. They reconnect the head to see if Ash will give them advice on how to defeat it, but instead he mocks them and claims the alien is the perfect organism. They disconnect the head again, and as they move on from the mess hall, Parker turns the flamethrower on Ash, incinerating his remains. Ripley will go prepare the shuttle for lunch, launch now, not for lunch, for launch, while Parker and Lambert go to gather coolant for the shuttle's life support system. While preparing the shuttle, Ripley hears Jones meowing on the intercom, poor kitty, and realizes the cat is left behind. Oh, Never no. leave a kitty behind. Very important rule. <laughs> Very important rule. <laughs> Ripley finds the cat while Parker and Lambert are gather. Oh, just let me... You lose your spot. I lost my place. Yeah, sorry. That's why I'm just being quiet. <laughs> Happens to the best of yeah. us. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Ripley finds the cat while Parker and Lambert are gathering supplies. The alien enters the room without either Parker or Lambert noticing. The alien closes in on Lambert. Parker tries to attack the alien from behind, but is successful and meets his demise as the alien pierces Parker's head with its teeth. 
Ripley can then hear the inner, through the intercom, the sounds of Lambert crying and screaming. Ripley finds their bloodied and lifeless bodies in the storage room with no sign of the alien. At this point, Ripley initiates self-destruct on the ship and starts to make her way to the escape shuttle. Along the way, she finds Dallas barely alive and a shape vaguely resembling Brett as he seems to be dissolving. Dallas begs Ripley to kill him. After some hesitation, she grants his request and incinerates them both. Ripley has a close run-in with the alien, but is able to make it to the shuttle with the alien nowhere in sight. She flies off as the ship destructs, and she has escaped the alien and destroyed it as well. Just kidding, that's not the end. Ripley gives Jones a hug. Kitty. Kitty's okay, and prepares one of the bio beds for hypersleep, putting Jones in it. As she makes final preparations, to her horror, she discovers the alien made it on board with her. Ripley is a genius, and she spacesuits up, gets herself a harpoon gun, and straps herself into a chair. She opens the shuttle's airlock door, blasting the alien into space. However, the alien manages to grab the edges of the doorway, trying not to be blown away. Ripley fires her harpoon, and it pierces the alien, making it let go of the doorway and blasting outside. As the door slams shut, though, the wire gets jammed with the alien still tethered to it. The alien tries to re-enter the shuttle, but Ripley takes the opportunity to fire up the engines and incinerate the alien, sending its remains off into space. Before entering hypersleep, Ripley records a final log stating that Kane, Lambert, Parker, Ash, and Captain Dallas are dead. She signs off as the last survivor of the Nostromo and goes into hypersleep. And that is the movie Alien. And real quick, um, I should have said this at the beginning, for these synopses, we try every week to create these in our own voice by going back through the movie on our own. Yeah, and just coming up with our own sort of summary. Yeah, I'll say more of my opinions until the end, but I found this movie exceptionally boring. Um, so I didn't have the patience for that. And I took most of the synopsis off of IMDb. I just kind of condensed theirs a little yeah bit. the one that was on there was super super long uh, yeah at least for it was a, like twice as long synopsis. as that honestly so, yeah, it, it's understandable that you kind of had to pare that down it's a shame that you found this one so boring i i can understand i mean you were there as i was literally falling asleep through it oh um, so was i yeah but it's one of those that the more that i've learned about the film especially in the research that we've done after watching it I actually do really want to go back and watch it again. Like I, I think it's worth going back to. I didn't give it a fair shake the first time around. And just for me personally, I think that a lot of that came from the fact that, you know, this is such a prolific film, just, just like it was with Poltergeist. Uh, this one has been parodied and retold in so many other pop culture places that I just felt like a lot of the punch that this film should have had was kind of lost on me because I've seen it referenced so many other ways and I've seen how the story plays out. So I did myself an injustice there just already knowing too much going into it. And I don't know. I don't know what got you into it that was so uninteresting, but at least that's what it was for me. I think that was part of it. And also, too, you know me. Sci-fi really isn't my genre. I like some science fiction, but it's really hit or miss for me and if it doesn't just engage me in the first 10 minutes then I'm probably not gonna like it which is a bad bias that I have I realize I (laughs) do but yeah as I said to you like 
I normally go to bed on a weeknight anywhere between 12.30 and 3 in the morning. Mm-hmm. I was asleep by 10.30 the <laughs> night that we watched this movie. Yeah. yeah. Makes sense. Well, let me tell you some of the interesting things that I've found out since watching the film that have kind of gotten me hooked back into it, making me want to go into it again. So the the first little bit that I found most intriguing, which I hope that most of our listeners will agree with, if not, you know, tweet at us with your uh, with your opinions on the film. But for me, what I found really most appealing about it was the art design. Uh, there was so much like the set design, the design of the costumes, the props, uh, even the ships that I found really fascinating. And I that was to me the probably the biggest draw of the film just going in with my bias already so some of the stuff i found out about it uh ridley scott was noted to have wanted the nostromo to be designed to look kind of like a a gothic cathedral floating through space uh in the brief shots that we do see of the nostromo exterior exterior and this is nostromo proper because that was part of the the issue that i had throughout the film with, with how people were referencing each ship is there is the Nostromo, the giant, what what is it, uh, like a tow ship, basically, like a tug? Yeah. Um, there's the Nostromo, and it's this huge thing. And then there's like their expeditionary craft that they use to get down to the planet, the surface of, what was it, a moon? Where they found this structure with the alien eggs in it? It was like a planet, moon, planet. Planet, moon, you know, potato, tomato, whatever. Um but yeah, a, a big problem that I had was trying to distinguish which one was the Nostromo. Um, but yeah, so the big ship, Nostromo proper, that was designed to look like a gothic cathedral. And hmm, so in the brief shots that we do see of it, uh, it does look very similar. You know, it's it's got these kind of bell tower like structures where they're kind of like very tall, slender and, and squared off at the top. Not unlike those of Notre Dame or Westminster Abbey two very well-known Western cathedrals in Europe. Um, And so I thought that was kind of cool that that he wanted it designed that way. And in some of the resources that I found, uh, it was said that Ridley Scott, or if not Ridley Scott himself, one of the people that went into producing this, and someone can correct us on this in the future. Um, But when it was first designed, the Nostromo was designed upside down. So exactly how we see it in the film, just upside down because Ridley Scott wanted it to look like a cathedral hanging like in the air. Okay. It it's really crazy the way to describe it. I have to look at it. Best thing that again. I can liken it to in other pop culture that I know of would be Neon Genesis Evangelion. There's a, a city in there that has a very similar structure where it goes from an above ground structure and the city as a defense mechanism lowers itself underground and you see all these buildings, these skyscrapers, then hanging from what's essentially a ceiling in a giant cavern. Uh, and I think it looked a lot like that. So anyone out there that knows Evangelion, you know what's up. Yeah, I just looked up a picture of the Nostromo actually. And yeah, I definitely see what you mean yeah, by it's the Gothic crazy. Cathedral. So... In an interview with Ridley Scott, um, there was a time when he was kind of talking about how at the time there there was a lot of influence from Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey as well as the first Star Wars film, which had just come out a couple of years before this one was released. Probably about the time they started filming, I would guess, just knowing general filmmaking t- 
time frames. Yeah, it came out in 77. Yeah, Star Wars was 77 and this was 79. Um, so in kind of comparing this film to those, Scott said, I wanted to do the truck driver version, the hard-nosed version. It was supposed to be the antithesis of Star Wars, the reality, the beauty of something absolutely about function. So that was one of the things that is is very well exemplified in the film where we see a lot of the set design, a lot of the prop work, uh, even the characters' outfits were all very, you know, form over over function sort of thing where they're meant to be more functional than they are meant to be pretty. And that's something that I found really grounded the film in reality, which I think is probably what Ridley Scott was trying to go for in making that design choice where, you know, we wanted to see this kind of lived in technological world where everything that we now, or, you know, in 1979 would have taken for something to be just out of this world, technologically advanced. It's something that in the world of the film of alien, it's, you know, it's dirty, it's grimy, it's secondhand used. Like these are things that have been around for a while, technologies that have always been used and abused and they've just kind of grown old over time and they've got a lot more of the a figurative sort of patina where they they're just showing their age and i thought that was a really cool sort of design choice because it does take it away from that typical like that star wars aesthetic where yeah everything's really futuristic but it's so shiny and it's so clean and that's that's just super unrealistic um there's there's no way that anything's going to stay shiny and clean forever and so that's really something that this film did really well is they showed the concept of this super futuristic technology that we can rely on as something that also kind of ages and degrades. I thought that was really cool. Um, so kind of on the in the same vein of the ship. So the ship was designed by a man named Ron Cobb, known at the time for designing a ship from a recent film called Dark Star which Ridley Scott took some inspiration from. Uh, it was, from what I read of it, because I haven't seen the film, from what I read of Ron Cobb's own description of it, is it was meant to be this sort of, again, like Ridley Scott design, describes Alien, a sort of antithesis to Star Wars. It was meant to be, as opposed to some grandiose space opera like Star Wars was, it was meant to be just this singular, you know, one spacecraft sort of set piece where a story can unfold. And I found that really interesting. Um, actually, in one interview with Dan O'Bannon, one of the writers for the film, he actually credited Ron Cobb, the guy that designed the ships, uh, with the idea for the alien to have corrosive blood. So that's kind of cool. Some guy that, yeah, that, that was just a, a, a ship designer, an artist, designing one of the set pieces for the film, ends up making a, a narrative sort of influence on the writer and giving them that idea. Um, the producer of the film, or at least one of them, a guy by the name of Walter Hill, he was quoted in an interview with Film International in 2004 saying, I called the ship Nostromo from Joseph Conrad. No particular metaphoric idea. I just thought it sounded good. <laughs> um, which, I honestly, I, I was kind of curious about that. So it's in reference to... Uh, a work done by Joseph Conrad, uh, a, a novelist, in a novel called Nostromo, A Tale of the Seaboard, written in 1904. 
And from the brief synopsis that I read about that uh, that book, which was apparently released in two parts in like a serial sort of thing. Um, yeah, there's almost no correlation between the story of Alien and Nostromo, A Tale of the Seaboard. Really, the only thing that plays into it there is the fact that Nostromo takes place on a ship. Um, so, yeah, I guess that makes sense. Is was, Nostromo the name of the ship? No, Nostromo is the name of one of the main characters of the story. I don't gotcha. remember what the ship was called, but Nostromo was the name of a guy. Um, and apparently Nostromo, Nostromo in Italian means uh, shipwright or like a ship hand, someone who works on a ship. Uh, or at least that's how it was interpreted in the resource that I found. So anybody out there that knows Italian, you got a better explanation of Nostromo. Let us know. I don't think we've made our way into Italy yet. No, we haven't. We will eventually. I, I'm sure that Italy's got a lot of good stuff that we can look into yeah. just because they've got such a storied history. I know we have an Irish listener, but I don't think we have any Italian listeners yet. Okay. Well, if we ever get any, please let us know. Um, so that kind of wraps up everything that I found on the ship. Just those, those general little bits. <laughs> For the alien itself... Uh, it was originally, the design was originally inspired by artwork from a book of published artworks of a Swiss artist named H.R. Geiger. And that book was titled Necronomicon. So that's pretty, <laughs> that's something. Necronomicon, the Book of the Dead. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, does it have any relation to like a textual no you'd have to look it up um i'm relatively familiar with the work of hr geiger just in pop culture um it's crazy stuff but i'll have to look it up i don't know if i've seen his work before actually well everything that looks like the alien is pretty much hr geiger okay. so he's actually become pretty well known for his design stylings known as a biomechanical aesthetic uh they often show an inherent sort of sexuality in the designs, which when looking at a picture of the specific piece of artwork that Ridley Scott cited as for his inspiration for the alien in this film, it was called Necronomicon 4, uh, and that's Roman numeral 4 for anyone who wants to look it up. Um, it legit, it looks just like the alien. It's kind of got like an elongated like vertebrae Ooh, sort yeah, of thing, it does. Um, but the head looks just like a dick. Just like it. Very phallic, very yep. sexual. It also has a giant dick curving up into its hands going over its... That is yeah. the longest so, uh, dick very, I've ever seen. Very oh sexual. my God. Um, so in a quote from a 2010 article from Zouch Magazine, I hope I said that right, they say this, the alien itself is a monstrous creature and yet it has an implicit but powerful sexuality. The creature combines male and female traits... The body has feminine curves, but the head is, a phallic, is phallic in shape. Likewise, the alien has a telescopic mouth, which is penetrative and phallic, but it can lay eggs, in a sense give birth to itself. The alien, therefore, has an ambiguous gender. At the same time, Geiger's design for the alien is a key example of biomechanization. The alien clearly is a biological creature, due to the emphasis on organic matter, you know, acidic blood, slime, secretions, but it has an exoskeleton that seems metallic and mechanical. The creature even moves like a machine, and the ship's science officer, Ash, describes it as a perfect organism because all it does is kill and reproduce itself. And that's something that really kind of echoed for me, is just this idea that it is 
it's a machine. You know, it really is. It's got those two purposes. And Ash puts it very well in that dialogue. All it does is kill and reproduce. That's when you break it down. That's all anything, any piece of life is going to do. It's either going to try and propagate its own kind, you know, reproducing, or it's going to try and eliminate predators, you know, eat on its prey or just take out competition or anything that may be considered a threat. You know, all it does is kill. And so Ash is right. It really is the perfect organism. It's crazy. So that's kind of all the interesting stuff that I found on the surface of just the general art design for the film. Um, So I don't know. What kind of interesting stuff have you found, Madeline? Well, thank you for that. Um, That's super interesting on the art, the inspiration for it. I um, thought that the alien was a really neat, interesting looking creature. Um, So... Yeah, thank you for that. Um, let's see, where should I start? Well, um, one piece of just random information I found is that there is an actual parasite that's similar to the alien creature. It's called the Phronema parasite, and they live pretty deep in the ocean, and they kill plankton eat their insides, and ride around the ocean in their husk. Ugh, gross. Then they lay eggs in the husk, and the babies come bursting out of the victims' bodies to begin the new cycle. Oh, that's even worse. <laughs> I mean, they're already dead. Um, but yeah, that's pretty brutal. Um, so that's a real, real-life <laughs> parasite deep in the ocean. That's pretty similar to the one that we see in Alien. But again, it's pretty deep in the ocean and goes after plankton. So I don't think we have anything to worry about. I'd hope not. The only other parasite that I know of that's kind of fucked up like that is one uh, one that's been referenced plenty in pop culture recently. I know it most from where people have theorized that that's what the um, the creatures in a video game series called The Last of Us are based off of. It's a, a parasite... That if I remember correctly, I didn't do any research on this. It's called cordyceps um, or something like that. And basically it's like this this sort of fungal parasite that takes over ants and basically just controls their whole body. Like literally takes over. And like it sprouts this little thing out of their head or somewhere in their body. And it's just like it takes over their whole body. It's so gross. But, okay, yeah, so that was pretty interesting. You've got this this weird underwater parasite. <laughs> That's my jumping off point. Um, <laughs> um, no, I did find a little bit about what influenced Dan O'Bannon. Um, he okay. was influenced by other sci-fi films like Invasion of the Body Snatchers and The mm. Thing from Another World, which is what John Carpenter's The Thing was also based off of which we've talked about maybe watching for this show we have a rule right now where we try to not cover a movie we've already seen before yeah we're trying really hard not to (laughs) the thing is one of my favorite horror films of all time so oh it's great i love digging into that but just for the purposes of trying to keep things interesting for us starting out we're just trying not to cover anything that we've already seen before so yeah maybe one day Uh, Not in the near future, but I'd definitely be down to look into that once we exhaust anything that's new and undiscovered. 
Yeah. Um, he was also influenced by H.P. Lovecraft. I know you like a good Lovecraft story. Yes. He was mostly influenced by his story from 1936 called At the Mountains of Madness. Okay. Have you read that one? I haven't read all of it. I've read like a a shortened version of it. Okay. But was that in the graphic his... novel? Yeah, that was one of the ones that was covered in the graphic novel that I had. Uh, but In the Mountains of Madness is one of his best known works, as far as I'm aware. Yeah, and that's when it's about a team of scientists that are hunted and killed by ancient creatures resembling fossil animals. So kind of a similar Yeah, and it's thing. honestly, it's been argued that uh, John Carpenter's The Thing was also heavily inspired by the same story. Oh, I could so definitely you, see that. You can then. kind of yeah. see the parallels in between the two. Definitely. And then I also came across an interview in LA Times with Ridley Scott that was actually from May of this year. Oh, wow. Um, so very recent. Yeah. So I'm just going to go Under through. quarantine, still doing interviews. Yeah, huh, seriously. It was like May 24th, something <laughs> like that. Damn. Especially in LA. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's not that hard to do a phone or Zoom interview. But, yeah, I guess that's fair. Yeah. But yeah. Um, so Ripley... Ripley. No. <laughs> Ripley Scott. <laughs> uh, no. Uh, Ridley Scott was the fifth choice for director for this movie. Um, oh. So no one expected this film to be successful. <laughs> okay. Um, the character... Ah, oh, this is why I messed up. Because the character of Ripley mm-hmm. was originally written as a man. I was... Really? Reading down a couple lines in my notes. But yeah, Ripley was originally written to be a man. Um, I then did later read that originally all the characters were written to be kind of gender ambiguous. Uh-huh. Um, and it just came down to what they were wanting to cast. So I think originally Ridley Scott was picturing a man to play Ripley. It wasn't necessarily written as a man. Like he didn't have to rewrite the character to make it fit for a woman, which I think also just speaks to how good of a character Ripley is. Um, but Yeah, and how good of an actress Sigourney Weaver is. <laughs> yeah, no, she did a great job in this. Um, but Ridley Scott credits the idea for making Ripley a woman to Alan Ladd Jr., who was then the president of 20th Century Fox. And during a meeting, he just said offhand, why can't Ripley be a woman? And Ridley Scott just hadn't thought of it that way before. And so he liked that that would be a fresh direction and went with it. And so he found Sigourney Weaver by word of mouth. She was on Off-Broadway at the time and Scott was pointed in her direction. He thought that she was perfect for the role and even made the statement that it was made for her. Wow. Just knowing historically how shitty Hollywood has been about casting female leads in anything. Especially kind of like this is kind of an action movie in a way as well. Yeah. But sci-fi action. You never see female. It's fascinating that this was a, a Fox Studios exec that made that suggestion initially. So I guess good on you, man. Um way to not just leave everything up to the dudes granted i will say i think my main gripe with this movie though ian 
What? If they would have just fucking listened to Ripley oh in God. fucking quarantine yeah. for 24 fucking hours. Well, that was one of the things just to kind of go off on a tangent If you just here. listen to the woman. Yeah. Well, that was one of the fun. things that really gave away to me the fact that Ash was meant to be the antagonist was because for a majority of the movie, the character of Ash is a stickler for protocol. Everything's about protocol. Everything's about, you know, like doing it the way that uh, the company wants it done. But when it finally comes down to this expeditionary team coming back to the ship after Kane gets his face hugged and his face shield melted by the face hugger, um, there's that scene where they're standing at the airlock and Dallas is yelling at Ripley, like, let us the fuck in, let us the fuck in, we're going to die. <laughs> and she's like, dude, no, quarantine. You it's know the, the process. <laughs> you know the rules. You're the captain. You know this shit. And, like, she's citing this procedure that makes sense, right? You want to quarantine anything that's kind of questionable uh, and just not let them into your ship to put everyone else at risk. You know, it's kind of like wearing a mask when there's a pandemic. Just do it. Don't be an asshole. Ian, you're going to piss them off. You're being too relevant. Ah, fuck off. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that moment when Ash is just like, ah, fuck it. And he opens the airlock and lets him in. I was like, wait a minute. Something's wrong here. <laughs> this is not what this character should have done. Oh, it made me so mad. I really think that's the main reason I didn't like this movie is. Just because nobody listened to Ripley. Yeah. No, it's true. Like Ripley later, was on yeah. it the entire time. And then so Dallas, if everyone just would have listened, then they would have been fine. Yeah, and then Dallas literally smacks her in the infirmary because she didn't want to let him in. And she reminds him, like, it's protocol. You're the captain. You know this. I mm -hmm. was doing this for the safety of the ship. Yep. Yeah. Um anyway, back to this <laughs> Sorry interview to with tangent. Ripley. Go on. <laughs> Uh, well, that's a, a good transition because now we'll transition into what he had to say on the infamous dining room scene. Ooh, okay. And John so Hurt's the dining room scene open. is um, what right after what's his face after Kane gets Kane, the face yes, hugger off was and he's hungry. Played by John Hurt. Right? Yes. Oh yeah, John Hurt. John Hurt's a hell of an actor. Yeah, and I liked how he was actually like you start the movie thinking he's the main character and then he's the first to die. Yeah, that Kinda was a like really Ned cool Stark twist. Kind of like Ned Stark in Game of Thrones. I'm still not over that. <laughs> Spoilers 10 seconds ago. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I'm just kidding. It's a, I think I'm the last person. At this point, that first season to, is like 10 years old. I think so. I'm like the last person in America to watch the first season of Game of Thrones. So Whatever. It's yeah. a dope show. Okay, anyway, we're opening this back in. <laughs> Dining room scene. So the scene was shot with multiple cameras because... Scott could only get the full effect once. He made this statement because once I blew blood all over the set, there was no cleaning it up. <laughs> um, John Hurt, the way they did this is really cool. So John Hurt knelt underneath the table and had his head popping out of a hole and the rest of the body was fake. Okay, I was really wondering how they did that. They did it really well to the point that Stanley Kubrick called Ridley Scott and asked him, how the heck did you do this? 
I've been watching this frame by frame and I can't figure it out. Yeah, no, it's really good because, I mean, you see the body, what what we know now is a fake body. You see it squirming and writhing and doing all this shit that looks superhuman. Like all of these movements that look really real. Yeah, so that's really cool. And just another kind of cool quote from Ridley Scott is he said, I kept it very much from the actors and I kept the little creature, whatever that would be from the actors. I never wanted them to see it. Remember, there was no digital effects in those days at all. I'm going to somehow bring that creature out of his chest. And so, yeah, so none of the actors knew this was going to be happening. So all of their reactions are genuine. Veronica Cartwright, who plays... um Oh, what's the Lambert? That's her name. Yeah. Who plays Lambert. She was sprayed in the face with fake blood. And this body was also filled with organs from a butcher. So she almost passed out (laughs) legitimately, which I can't blame her. I, oh, I don't know. I probably would have flipped my shit so hard. Well, that's actually, it's kind of funny that you say that because I remember watching that scene and you can see when she gets sprayed in the face with the blood and it's like a couple drops here and there, but it's obvious. And she has this look on her face of just pure disgust and shock. Yeah, no, that was a genuine reaction. I think it's like it looked genuine. Like you can, a lot of the time with actors, you could tell when they're, when they're trying to put on a face because it's very it's perfected like it's it's this thing that they've kind of practiced over and over again like okay i'm putting on my disgusted face whereas in that moment like there was no acting there whatsoever she was just disgusted definitely (laughs) i think that was a really cool way though that ridley scott went about doing that scene honestly not telling them because yeah that's how you get that genuine reaction but also it had to go right or else it was ruined. There mm-hmm. would never be that kind of response. Um, speaking of Veronica Cartwright, this is kind of the last little bit of information I have. Mm-hmm. Um, I really couldn't find as much on this movie as I normally do. But she kind of had a rough go of it oh. during this film. So she originally thought that she would be playing Ripley. And this is because when she was auditioning, she only ever read for Li- Ripley. She never read for Lambert. That was never mentioned to her. Huh. Um, when she got the call for the movie, they didn't f- flat out say which character she was playing. So she just assumed it was Ripley, which I honestly think is a reasonable assumption yeah it wasn't until she got a call from the wardrobe department to schedule a fitting that she discovered she would be playing lambert and even her agent thought that she would play ripley because that was literally all that she read for and all that she was called in for yeah that's shitty and even her agent said it was very unusual for an actress to get to set without knowing what part she's playing because one she'll need time to prepare and two, she probably should have signed a proper contract. So I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. That's just a little Maybe bit. Maybe she just didn't read it. That would suck. Maybe, yeah. That'd be the worst way of being called out on the fact that you didn't read the contract you signed. Just be like, I don't know what character I'm playing. Yeah, well, it's in I the contract. Yeah, I did come across that. Um, which <laughs> so, yeah, if anybody leads knows. me to be more inclined that there wasn't a proper contract. But yeah, uh-huh. I don't know. She, though, she got into the part quickly. And she really grew to enjoy the character of Lambert. She, she was, did a good however, job. that's for sure. She did. Um, she was, however, disappointed that a number of her scenes ended up on the cutting room floor. Like originally, we were supposed to see Lambert's death on screen. 
Um, and I did read somewhere that because her scene cuts, her death scene cuts away, um, that it kind of leaves some questionable insinuations up in the air. Yeah. Based off the last image we see is, if I'm correct, the alien kind of like writhing up her leg. Mm-hmm. And so we don't see the rest of that scene, but when they cut back to Lambert's body, her crotch is noticeably bloody. Ooh. So because they cut out the rest of that scene, it can be very heavily insinuated that Lambert was killed from a horrific rape, which I Jesus. do not like that at yeah, all. That's um, fucked up. I didn't even interpret it that way. The internet did that to me. So thank you. Thanks, internet. <laughs> thank you. Um, but Jeez. I don't know if anyone else interpreted it that way, but I read that her death scene has become very controversial within the franchise because of that. Well, I mean, that is something they were doing around that time frame. I mean, that's exactly 1979, I believe, is pretty close to when the uh, the Evil Dead was being filmed and released. So that's something that in that film, there's that nasty tree rape scene. Oh, I remember when we watched yeah. that together. That was messed up. Can't believe yeah, you showed me have, that on our first date. Must have been a thing back <laughs> in in those times where it was just acceptable. Yeah, I mean, Jesus. this was what like not that far off after Rosemary's Baby too, mm-hmm. and like in that movie we see spousal rape, and I learned after the fact of that episode that like that was legal in New York up until the eighties. Fuck. Yeah, it wasn't a crime. Um. So Jesus, that's fucked up. I know. Oh, it makes me angry. But yeah, so I do kind of think as disgusting and fucked up as it is that this was just kind of the norm and kind of accepted. Um, I have one more little tidbit of information. Um, So John Hurt and Veronica Cartwright again were slightly poisoned during filming. What? Um, so when we see them filming an exterior shot in their full spacesuits, um, uh-huh. there was a leak that sprang from one of the tombs leading to their helmets. So aerosol leaked into their costumes, um, which almost caused them to faint. Mm-hmm. They were able to remove the helmets before passing out. And of course, like the production studio said like, no, it's fine. They wouldn't have died. It was... They weren't poisoned. It was fine. It was just mild. But John Hurt felt a little a little sketchy about the situation. Understandable. Yeah. yeah. Um, but that's all the information I have. Okay. Well, to, to kind of bring it all together, and especially this kind of links in with what you were saying about Veronica Cartwright's character's death, um... There's some really interesting underlying themes for this film. So much jizz imagery. So much jizz imagery. Jizz imagery. <laughs> I don't know. Um, so this is all stuff that, again, because I was unfortunately, you know, underprepared and kind of falling asleep through watching this film. Same. Um, these are conclusions that I, I didn't come to on my own. I've, I've found a lot of interesting context for these things that I'm going to cover here in a second online. Um, and I'll kind of go over where I've found them. But so there was an essay that was written about the film and it's called Alien and the Monstrous Feminine. And it was written by a woman named Barbara Creed 
and it puts into words very well how the film explores the ideas of birth and sexuality and how they can be horrifying. So the essay was written citing the influence of a psychological concept discussed in a book by a woman called Julia Kristeva. I hope I pronounced that right. And that book is titled Powers of Horror, an Essay in Abjection. So abjection, in this context anyway, is it means the idea that in order for a child to gain a sense of self, it must reject anything associated with the maternal or with the process of giving birth. So things like placenta, blood, uh, an umbilical cord or anything like that. Right. So uh, one of the really easy sort of references to that that I can think of just off the top of my head is the face hugger that grabs onto Kane. Um, we see it's kind of got a tail that wraps itself around his neck. Kind of phallic. Yeah, right? That's well, how I took it. I looked at it as an umbilical cord. Oh, right? okay. So that's that's how I looked at it. But we'll, we can get a little bit more into the face hugger in a bit. So... In her essay, Barbara Creed argues that the film repeatedly shows the primal scene, as it's called, or, you know, the scene of birth or origin. So we see this in in the film in basically three different places as how it's stated in the essay. Right. So there's the first scene where the crew is waking from its hypersleep. Um, so the sleep vault itself is shown as this very open and cavernous, like white room with all the pods in the middle. And it's kind of like a womb, right? Because it's open. There's nothing except for these pods holding the crew members. All right. And it's very sterile. It's, it's white. There's nothing in it other than the walls and the pods. So it's almost like the delivery room in a hospital in some senses, right? Uh, the crew wake up from their hypersleep after an undisclosed amount of time. So depending on how long they've been asleep conceptually, it could be like waking to a whole new world. You know, it solidifies that imagery of giving birth to a new person. Because um, from what we see in the film, they're saying, what, it's going to take 10 months to get back to Earth? Um, who knows how long they've already been in hypersleep? You know, they it could have been... They did say they were under halfway through the, or halfway or less than halfway back, I'm sorry. Um, oh, okay. So that kind of gives some reference. So yeah, like some kind of point of reference. Maybe it's been about 10 months so far that they've been asleep. Yeah, but no just more generally, than that. I mean, you know, if we're talking about huge interstellar travel, if they're, these are ships that are designed with these hypersleep pods, you know, it's theoretically, it's possible that they could be asleep for decades. Oh, that sounds so nice. Well, just imagine how disorienting and how horrifying it would be to I wake up. Right. You yeah. know, you go to sleep tonight and let's say you wake up and it's 2060. Okay, yeah. No, Where the fuck terrifying. my last 40 years just gone? <laughs> you know, at that point, you're relearning life. You're basically a new human. So there's that kind of parallel there, right? Um, another thing about that initial scene where they're all being woken up is that they're being woken up by the ship's computer. And what's it called, Madeline? Mother. Yeah. Mother. So it's an overt symbol of maternity. 
and it's controlling their actions. And we see that throughout the film. Mother is what determines that they're going to wake up. You know, mother is what determines that the course needed to be changed and that they've got this new directive. Mother is what decided they were expendable. Mother is what decided they're expendable. Exactly. So you've got this whole idea of maternity and birthing that's shown in the very opening scene with the, the crew waking up. So the next example that's cited in this essay was the sequence where the the expeditionary crew gro- goes down to this moon surface and they're inside the ship and they find all the eggs, right? So the ship as it's designed was noted, at least in some of the resources that I found, it's noted to look like two erect penises because it's kind of shaped there like a, like almost like a horseshoe, you know, from what I remember seeing when it was wedged down in the dirt. That, yeah, right? Since I just looked up. Yeah, the you ship. look at the ship and it, it's two erect penises. Oh, no, it's a Gothic cathedral. No, no, that's the Nostromo. We're talking Nostromo. about the alien ship, the one oh. on the surface of the planet. Oh, yeah. I, sorry, I got confused. No, okay. no, that's fine. That I had a lot of confusion there too. No worries. Uh, so it's noted that those look like two erect penises and then where the crew actually enters the ship it's this kind of arched doorway that's got kind of this lip around the outside is it a looking birth canal almost like a vagina yeah it's 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 a, a a vaginal doorway into this phallic ship structure so it's already right you're seeing it that it's this very sexualized object that while not overtly shaped like a dick like, it's long, it's slender, and it's stiff. You know, that's that's humanity. It's dick. Whatever. <laughs> it is dick. <laughs> um, so once, once the crew, once this expeditionary crew gets inside the ship, there was that scene that you recounted in your summary where Kane finds a hole, and he kind of spelunks down into this huge cavern. Right? Mm-hmm. So we see it. It... It's this vast sort of cavernous space with hundreds, maybe even thousands of these eggs lining the ground. And that in and of itself, this huge cavernous space containing all these eggs, what does that remind you of? A womb, right? So it's it's this place for gestation of new life. Cain is delving down into this giant womb. And what does he find there? One of these eggs. Well, the egg, when Cain shines his light through it, you know, we see this life inside growing. We know that this is a birth chamber where he's at because he finds the egg. He sees this little spidery sort of thing wiggling around in there. And so this alien creature inside the egg, in and of itself, it's shown to be a vessel for further propagation of the species. When it jumps on his face and, for lack of a better word, it impregnates him with an alien embryo. Now, one thing that I said I saw in uh, in the article that I kind of pulled this stuff from was that uh, they said that it feminizes Cain in the sense that he was forcibly raped and impregnated, and I found that to be a little bit fucked up because I think that that's basically implying that to be raped is a feminine quality, and that's not right. So that's one thing that I kind of took umbrage Ooh, no, with. No, I don't, I don't agree with that either. Yeah, yeah that's no, a little I, bit of a problematic way to look at it. Yeah. But I think that is why I did view that creature as being more phallic-like than exactly. placenta-like. So while, 
you know, we know that it's not something where rape is something that only happens to women. It's predominantly an atrocity against women. And so, yeah, well, I can I absolutely see that. where you see that's something more phallic. I, yeah, and I just, I won't even say that, make the plain statement that rape predominantly happens more to women because so many cases go unreported. Yeah. Um, we can't really make that statement, but I think, I think being raped is portrayed in media as a feminine thing, and that's okay. where the problem is. Yeah, I can see where you're coming from with that. That makes a lot of sense. So, the final, um, oh, I, I just brain farted right there. The final example. <laughs> there we go. The final example of just this this birth origin scene this as it's called uh the primal scene is the dinner scene you know where we see the the chest burster coming out of Kane's chest and so th- in that scene there are a lot of obvious parallels to typical human birth so you know we see the creature bursting from Kane's abdomen you know that's that's typically where we see a baby bump coming in is just like the abdomen of a pregnant female uh, and when it comes out, it sends showers of blood all over the place and he's screaming in pain. You know, this is, it was meant at least as far as this essay is concerned, it's designed this dinner scene with the chest burster to kind of put into perspective for a male, what it would be like to give birth, you know, cause for us, we, we don't have any point of reference where we can say, okay, I'm horrified of giving birth because of A, B, and C. It's one of my biggest fears, actually. Is and you know what? It's totally understandable. Giving birth. And I've I never, never put, seen it put in so visceral a context as this film to make it really understandable. Because that's something where you see that. And as a man, uh, as a, a male human, you understand that you're not going to have to worry about giving birth. The most you got to do is shoot your gun into your lady and eventually a baby grows and she pops it out, right? That's the most that we have to think of it. But this film really puts it into those visceral terms where, okay, Cain was forcibly overcome by a foreign being which jammed its proboscis down his throat to presumably impregnate him. And then to you know at no fault of his own having no desire for it he gives birth to this alien creature that rips him apart and takes the life out of him you know that's a horrifying thing to think about and so that's something that most males don't ever have to consider and so that's something that i think this film did very well is putting that fear of childbirth into a male Cause that's something that up until I watched this film, I never fully understood like conceptually. Sure. I can understand why it's terrifying, but just actually seeing it on screen is something that really resonated. It was scary. You've always been very understanding of the fact that childbirth fucking terrifies me. And just Ugh. for many, many reasons, I do not want kids of my own. It's just not anything I've ever wanted for myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've always been very understanding of that, but I'm glad that this movie gave you a new level of empathy towards why I do not want to go through childbirth. Yeah, it's hot damn between this and Star Wars. <laughs> 
Wait, what <laughs> where, in Star Wars? Uh, what's her face? Where Padme gives birth oh, to the, the yeah. two Skywalker kids and dies in childbirth. Yeah, I've only Between seen... this and that. <laughs> I've only the only two things episodes... in media I'll ever need. Okay, yeah. Sorry for... No, you're fine. Go ahead. I've only seen episodes one through three of Star Wars like once when I was nine. So I don't actually remember those that well. I was very much obsessed with Star Wars as a, a younger man. Oh, I Kind of gotten over that in these days where it's it's not such a big part of me anymore, but it used to be. Yeah, you're not as crazy about it anymore, but no, definitely I still I, like it. I'm trying to calm down. So on the subject of abjection, so this was the the theory put forth by Julia Kristeva in her book titled Powers of Horror, an Essay in Abjection. So abjection, as we covered, is just the idea that a child needs to you know, reject anything maternal, anything having to do with birth in order to form their own identity. And so the article that I pulled a lot of this information from was from a Zouch magazine article. And so I'll read a couple quotes for us here to kind of wrap up the last little bit of what I've got. So in that article, it says, Kristeva argues that we have a subconscious fear of the abject throughout our lives. The abject consists of all things that threaten our sense of cleanliness and propriety, such as the interior workings of the body, bodily fluids, and waste. Being forced to face the abject is inherently traumatic. For example, Kristeva writes that encountering a corpse is repulsive because, because one is forced to face an object that violently has been cast out of the social world, having once been a subject. A corpse reminds us that we are ultimately just organic matter that will rot away. And so that's kind of one of the main themes that they bring around into this film, uh, especially in that scene where we see, uh, what's the character's name? Brett? Dissolving? I think it was Brett, yeah. Yeah, like literally dissolving, rotting away. And it's it's just this inherent human fear that, you know, we're going to die. We're going to rot. We're going to become worm food. We're going to be nothing. It's terrifying. That's why you're going to burn my body and plant me into a tree, right? Yeah, of course. There, there are services out there where you can get your your remains put into a tree, like into the soil of it, so you can be a nutrient for a new tree. That'd be cool. That's how I want to be buried. Really nice. Yeah. So in the article, um, the final quote that I've got from that says, "Barbara Creed," and then just kind of bringing that back so we remember. Uh, Barbara Creed is the one, the lady who wrote the essay called Alien and the Monstrous Feminine. Will you that, please send me this essay if you still have it? Cause yeah, it I'll definitely send that to you. Sounds interesting. Really I would like cool. to read it's it. It's really interesting. Thank you. They, they did so much better work in these than I ever could do in a million years. That's why I'm quoting it, because I can't put it into better words. So the final quote that I've got from this Zouch Magazine article says, Barbara Creed uses Kristeva's theory of abjection in her analysis of Alien. She argues that the film represents the female as a horrific and abject. The scene in the hypersleep vault suggests that in the future, birth has been sanitized and sterilized. Technology has been used to banish the abject. However, the alien, with its monstrous reproductive cycle and horribly visceral nature, forces us to confront the true nature of birth as abject and organic. Birth is depicted as a horrifying process. The image of a male being impregnated with the creature that gestates inside the body and rips itself free is the key way in which the film abjectifies female roles. Ultimately, Alien is about humans being forced to confront the abject, which they have tried to suppress. 
So, yeah, in that one quote, it basically puts very succinctly my thoughts on the film is just, especially after this research, is that showing a, a dude having to go through a violent and visceral sort of birth of a new creature really puts the fear in you of anything having to do with giving birth. It's just nuts. So that's pretty much everything that I've found that really scratches the surface on this film. There's so much more that you can go into it, just like with most of our films that we've covered so far. I feel like I'm always mm-hmm. saying that. Real quick, I want to say, because I know I said jizz imagery, and jizz you imagery. didn't really touch on that. I saw that in when, in two different instances when they try to cut the thing attached to Kane's face finger mm-hmm. when it just squirts out the acid oh, fucking acid and then too when they kill ash and he just is spewing white liquid oh yeah the white all fluid. over the place yeah that's why that's why i said jizz imagery because okay i can see was where, there i can see where you're coming from katie <laughs> <laughs> i'm sorry that was uncalled for so I mean, I don't really have anything else that I need to go over. I know that you've already expressed some of your feelings about the film. So why don't you give us a scale of 1 to 10, where you rate this film. Uh, and, you know, if you had one, who's your favorite character? Okay. Um, I might talk a little bit more than just rating it. But, yeah, I... I'm very conflicted on this film because it is a very well done film. I cannot deny that fact. The set pieces are amazing. Uh, It's very, very well produced. Even though I feel like it fell a little flat at times, I think that may just be more attributed to the writing of the characters. I didn't think the acting in it was that great other than Sigourney Weaver. Um, And for her, I really felt like she her character really only came into its full being once it was only her and only up to her to depend on herself for survival mm-hmm. so i don't know i just there i thought it was a boring movie i'm sorry <laughs> i'm probably going to make all of our listeners hate me for this but i just didn't like this movie um Again, it was very well done, but I didn't think it was that creepy or that disturbing. So honestly, I can only give it on like the creep scale. Ooh, is that what we can start calling it? Sure, if you want to call it a creep scale. Let's call it our creep scale. Sure, creep scale. Right now, it's kind of an arbitrary scale. (laughs) Well, I mean, we always do things in scale of 1 to 10. That's very true. That's fine. Creep Um, scale, 1 to 10. Our creep scale, yeah. Um, So on the creep scale... I can only give this one like a three, maybe a four, if I'm being generous. that low? I think it's mainly because kind of like you said, this movie has been around since 1979. We waited 41 years after it came out to watch it. Yeah. Pretty much all the big spoils were spoiled. Like I knew going into this about the stomach scene. Yeah. I, yeah, I feel like I already kind of knew what this film was before I watched it. Mm-hmm. Kind of like you were saying earlier. Um, so I know I have a really unpopular opinion on this one. I do. I'm a minority. But you know what? I'm 
I'm not a film critic. We're not professionals at this. So what the <laughs> no, fuck do I actually know about movies? I'm not educated on film other than the one class I took on music. Right. So, yeah, if I had to pick a favorite character, I I think Ripley is a good character. I really do. She's a very strong character and I don't even want to mm-hmm. say she's a very strong female character because yeah. she was written gender ambiguous okay. all of them were she's a good character and Sigourney Weaver really does a good job of portraying her one thing I know I've said this to you over the past few days that I do have to give this movie a lot of credit for because we never see this if you've seen this movie you know it is six white people and one person of color yep movies of this genre typically tend to kill off the people of color before they're white actors. Mm -hmm. That's just how it goes, and it's fucked up. This is one of those few movies where the two women and the one person of color are the three to make it to the end. (laughs) Yeah, they definitely got us there. Yeah, so I do have to... That's maybe why I would give the film a four, just because it did a good job in that way. Um, But... If I had to pick a secondary favorite character, it would be the cat. It's Kitty. a it's a very hard tie between Jones and Ripley. I'm always going to find cats to be some of the best characters. I'm a sucker for a kitty. I actually did find some theories on what the cat represents. Really? The I cat did. represents something? All right. Um, what do you got? At least there are fan theories of it. So I found three different ones from... I'm going to go in the order of least extreme to craziest. <laughs> All right. The first one is that it's an on-screen representation of Ridley Scott himself. And this is because Jones is the only character who can move about the ship and the plot freely. He isn't confined to the other constraints of the ship, such as unlocking doors and barriers, as we see the humans be. In almost every scene, we are allowed the idea that Jones is present, even if we don't actually see him. And he leads many of the characters to the next scene or plot point and also creates moments of tension. So that's the first one. (laughs) Well, just a a quick interjection on that one. It also makes sense because Ridley Scott is a ginger. (laughs) And this was an orange tabby cat. Oh, I didn't know that he was a ginger. Yeah, before he uh, lost all the pigment in his hair for all the... You know, once later, you know, nowadays when he's 80 something, I think. Yeah. You see pictures of him on set and he's got red hair. So, yeah, this is a a red haired sort of orange cat. So, yeah, I can see that parallel, too. Okay, kind of funny. Interesting. Go on. That's cool. Okay, so this one is my favorite. Jones is best friends with the alien and is helping the alien to try to kill the crew. And so the evidence for this is Jones is present in almost every scene where the alien appears and he turns up to spook the crew in other scenes like when they mistake him for the creature on their scanners. Uh So was it really Jones they were getting on the scanner or was he just leading them to the alien? That's my favorite one. And then this last one is the most far-fetched and you will understand this better than I do because I'm also not a Marvel person. Oh, mm-hmm. I'm making so many enemies today. Marvel <laughs> movies are boring. I said it. Um Well, there goes half our listeners. I know. All those Marvel people interested in these We're just weird like, movies ah, we've fuck been covering. This girl. <laughs> uh, hopefully they're not still listening at this point. Yeah. Um, Jones is actually a flurkin. A flurkin? Okay, I know a little bit about Marvel. From the, I don't know what the hell MCU. Is. So you'll, I think you'll know once I 
explain it. So they're creatures that look like cats but have pocket dimensions in their mouths. And this was introduced in Captain Marvel with a cat named Goose. Okay. Yeah, I know the you've cat seen from Captain, Captain Marvel. Marvel. Uh-huh. Yeah, and so the really only substantial basis for this is Disney owns both Fox Studios and Marvel, and they owned Marvel when Captain, or not Captain, um, Captain Marvel, yeah. I was about to say Captain America. <laughs> when Captain Marvel came out, and because Jones and Goose are both orange male cats, that's really it. Um, so that's the most far-fetched one, but... That's pretty far-fetched. Jones I plotting a, with the alien is my favorite theory. That's that is the one I'm funny. standing behind. I can confirm that not all orange male cats have pocket dimensions in their mouths. The first cat that I had as a child, his name was Mitch. Rest in peace, Mitch. He was an orange tabby cat, and he was the loveliest little kitty in the world. He did not have a pocket dimension in his mouth. Just a fuzzy tongue and bad breath. All right. Well, I've (laughs) talked enough about what I thought of this movie. What were your thoughts, Ian? I know doing research really changed your view of this movie. So I'm curious to hear what it is now. Um, You you know, like I said, unfortunately, I couldn't do this film as much justice as it deserves. I was kind of nodding off towards the climax of it. Um, But... Looking back through in the research that I've done, it's really given me a lot more interest in looking into like the nuance of what goes on. So I'll just say that from my first viewing of the film, if I had to rate it on the creep scale, is that what we're calling it? Yeah, the creep scale. The I creep mean, scale? we're creep shows. We should have a creep scale. <laughs> sure. We got a creep scale now. That's a thing. Sure. Um, if I had to rate it just from my first viewing... I'd have probably put it at about a six, which if I remember correctly, I think that's where I put Poltergeist as well. And it's for the exact same reason. Uh, I think it was a very well-made film. I think it did everything that it looked to do uh, very effectively. But unfortunately, like Madeline said, it's been 41 years since this movie was released. I've seen it parodied and I've seen it referenced in so many other aspects of pop culture that all the gravity of the film was kind of lost because I knew what to expect. And we've both been alive for a lot of the um, Predator crossovers. Yeah. So I think that too. I think all of the Predator crossovers. Um, But yeah, I would have given it a 6 out of 10, I think, just knowing that it's been beat to hell in pop culture ever since. You see it in everything. Um, But going back, knowing what I know of the art design, of the themes behind it, of all the way that it was produced, and what it inevitably leads into with the 15 bajillion other films that are now tied to Alien, uh, I would think that if I were to give this another fair shake, I would probably rate it around an 8 Oh, really? Just knowing what I know about the film, uh, I'd have to watch it with this new kind of perspective on it to know for sure. But it's definitely one that it's earned every accolade that it's it's ever gotten. And it's I very well made. It's got well. an excellent atmosphere. It's got excellent acting. I know you kind of shit on a little bit of the acting there, just saying that the characters were not written very well. And there's not much that an actor can do with a poorly written character. That's just understood 
Um, I just don't think they were fleshed out enough, but also I don't think the story allowed for it. It's hard to fully develop a character yeah. in two hours. So and I'm that's being thing, really harsh gotta, on it for that. I, I am. Exactly. And you got to try and make that, you got to make that understanding of where the producers and the writers had to balance between what kind of story they wanted to tell and what kind of story they had the time and resources to tell. Cause that oftentimes dictates a lot of what can be done in a film. So in the sense that you don't think that the characters are fleshed out while yes, that is fair in one sense, I think in another that doesn't do justice to the idea of the film. So I think there's a lot more to be had out of this film than what I've gotten out of it through my first viewing. I want to look back on this film in another year, maybe two, um, just kind of see how I feel about it at that point, knowing everything I know about it now. Okay. Well, if but, we still like each other by then, I'll <laughs> watch we, it with you If we you still again. like each other by then and we're still podcasting by then, we can do another episode. Who knows? But if I had to pick a favorite character, for me personally, aside from the number one kitty cat, Jones. Uh, what a I, good boy. What a good boy. I would have to pick Parker. Uh, the what is it? He the, he's the chief engineer or something on deck. He's the only person of color throughout the entire film, but I find his character to be the best because he's the one that resonates with me most on just a day to day human level. Like one of, one of the first things that we see come out of Parker's mouth is him complaining about the fact that as an engineer he doesn't get paid as much as the officers. <laughs> you know, he's doing the work that keeps the ship running he's the one that makes sure him along with brett they're the ones that make sure that the ship continues functioning and yet they're getting shafted with what he thinks at the time is what half a share or something like that something like that yeah which sigourney weaver's character uh ripley corrects him and she says hey you know legally you're entitled to a full share right like you know that you're just being played um but, oh, I forgot about that. Yeah, it's kind of funny. But I liked Parker a lot because he gave that very relatable sort of human aspect to the film where it's just this is a job. You know, he takes pride in it and he does it well. But at the end of the day, he knows that he's being used by the Wayland yutani Corporation that owns the ship. And he knows that he's being used as this engineer that they can pay the least to get the most amount of work out of. And it pisses him off. That kind of shit pisses me off, too. So I really liked Parker a lot, and I was really sad to see him go. Uh, Again, just knowing from where it's come in pop culture, like I knew that Ripley was the only human character to survive the first film. Um, And so in that sense, I was kind of sad to see him go. I just knew it had to happen. But I thought Parker was the best. And then, of course, you got Jones, Kitty Meow. Apparently, Jones is in the sequel as well. What? Also, Hell yeah. I want to watch Aliens now. <laughs> yeah. Well, I didn't realize. So Sigourney Weaver is actually in Alien, Aliens, and Aliens 3. And I was saying this to you earlier between... So there were three sequels made to Alien. So four mm-hmm. Alien movies in total just on their own. Okay. And then with the Predator crossovers included, there's a total of eight alien movies hot damn i don't know how many just individual predator movies there are because there's at least i'm guessing there's at least 10 movies within this universe yeah i don't know that's something to dig into for sure but beyond alien the original from 1979 we're covering today the rest of them are all pretty much just action films they don't really fall into that horror like yeah they they've got the creatures and that's kind of horrific as it is but 
the rest of the films all kind of fall more into that action genre yeah. than they do with suspense or horror. I know of I know a lot of people though like Aliens more than Alien. Well, in some of the resources that I was going through, I found some comparisons in the props and um, costuming between Alien and Aliens. And every screenshot that I've seen of Aliens, because I've never seen any of the other films in the franchise, just to make that clear. Um, Me neither. Obviously, I've never seen anything. Um, But... In that film, it looks to be more of like a, an action film where everybody's meant to be space marines. So it's it takes a drastic turn where it's no longer just the a consolidated, confined ship, like crew of a ship. It's people in space that are also marines? I don't know. I haven't actually seen it. I, I can't do it any justice trying to give it a description now. But all I know is that, at least from the screenshots that I've seen, it looks more like Starship Troopers than it looks like Alien. Oh, didn't we watch that together as well? I love Starship Troopers. It's a great satire. I'm pretty sure you showed me that one, yeah. (sighs) Seriously, Starship Troopers is one of those films that, if I'm ever bored and don't know what to do and just want to put on something on the TV, I'll just pop in Starship Troopers. I'm totally cool with that. Okay, yeah, we've definitely watched it together We've definitely watched it. I don't know if you paid attention, but... We've watched it. Isn't there a brunette chick? <laughs> yeah, you could say that about any film. <laughs> Isn't there a brunette chick? Well, probably. Except for all the movies in the sci-fi genre that just pretend women don't exist. Yeah, then you can say, "Isn't there a brunette chick?" No, there are no females. <laughs> None whatsoever. All right. I don't have any more thoughts on this film. Um, Ian, would you like to say any final last thoughts you have and then announce next week's movie, which I'm not looking forward to? Well, joke's on you. I don't have any thoughts. So I guess we'll just move on to next week's film. Uh, So we've decided after some deliberation with my Uh, flop of a choice for this week, at least in our opinions. I don't think um, it was a total flop. I mean, not a total flop. We've learned a lot more since, but at the time of watching it, it seemed like a flop. And it's I felt its own bad. sort of classic, and we've finally seen yeah. it now. So, so next week we've decided to do a film that many people probably haven't seen. Uh, I know I've watched the American remake of it, but we're actually going to do the original version of a film called Funny Games from 1997 yeah this one has been recommended to us a lot both by people on twitter and through email and again from our friend pablo thanks pablo i know that in watching the american remake from what i've understood of it it's supposed to be basically a beat for beat remake of the original that we're gonna watch so i do have some experience seeing it but oh man am i excited for you to watch it first time i saw this film i was probably 15 years old And I just remember being blown away once it was over. I just know it's about home invasion, which after childbirth is my next biggest fear. It goes childbirth, home invasion, flying in airplanes. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, this is going to be a rough world then. So um, I'm not looking forward to this one, but it's been recommended to us so much that I feel like I just have to get over it and watch it with I really like funny games and it's one that for anyone that hasn't seen it yet do yourself a favor watch funny games if it's the original or the remake watch it be prepared for our next episode because that film is just a ride you gotta watch it to really get it it's great 
We're going to be watching the original on HBO Max. I'm not sure where you can find the 2007 American remake. The only thing I remember from the 2007 remake, other than just the general plot points, are that one of the main characters is played by Michael Pitt. Um, I know what I've seen him in most recently was Boardwalk Empire. Um, But Michael Pitt is a fantastic actor, and especially for those roles that are just unnerving, he did a very good job. So I'll be curious to see who the counterpart is uh, from the original production that takes his role, because I really want to see how they can can do their own take on that character. But I'm really looking forward to it, and I hope the rest of you will join us next week as we watch Funny Games. And that pretty much wraps up everything I've got. Madeline, take it away. Thank you so much for listening. If you have movie suggestions for us, as always, you can send them to creepshowspodcast at gmail.com or you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at creepshowspod. I haven't been announcing this, but we also do have a Facebook group. You can find us on Facebook. I believe it's called Creepshows Podcast Fan Group pretty easy to join pretty easy. yeah if you want to connect with other people who like the show or like fucked up movies you can support us on patreon at patreon.com slash creep podcast and if you listen to us on apple Podcasts, please leave us a five-star review it really helps us out and we hope you join us next week stay safe out there bye bye